Welcome to Farming Eternal, an eternal podcast for farmers, hosted by me, Patrick, or Padumaro, and Hats on Lamps. It's episode 52. For those of you tuning in for the first time, we are a draft-focused podcast. Our goal is to help you and me, mostly me, get better at draft. We get into the nitty-gritty of the drafting process with a little meta-analysis and play tips thrown in. This week, we're going to talk about how our draft week went, thank our patrons, card of the week, seven-win run breakdown. Our main topic is an interview with Jed the Homerid about his community survey. So uh, first off, um, <laughs> hello, Jed. Hi, Patrick. <laughs> Welcome to the show. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. And Hats, you too. Hello. Um, so let's begin. So Hats, how was your draft week? Uh, it was uh, it was okay, a little bit up and down. Uh, as as you know, uh, there was a little shift in the draft environment uh, this last week. Uh, they didn't remove or add any cards to the curated draft packs, but they did shift the rarities, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later. But it was enough to throw me way way off, and I lost a lot of games um, for a little while. And over the last couple of days, I've I've uh, I've been winning a little bit more, getting a little bit more comfortable with whatever the new texture of this uh, of this draft format is. So I'm feeling okay right now. But I definitely went through a frustrating period where nothing seemed to work. How was your draft week? Awful. I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. This week, I, this week caused me to question a lot of things about my life choices. <laughs> 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 I, I, I at one point uninstalled Eternal from my phone. Uh-huh. I um, then was like the next day. I was like, oh, maybe that was a little rash. And so I played a game on my computer. And then um, this was a deck I posted about on Discord where I had four rectifiers and then played a 13-turn game. I lost to a single flyer in the air. And without ever drawing a rectifier. And so I was like, maybe I should just uninstall internal from every device (laughs) that I can get my hands on. uh... Other people's computers. (laughs) Cross out the word eternal in books. (laughs) Um and then yeah, and then I that deck continued proceeded to go O three. It was it was so awful, but um, but I have a podcast to do, so I I did I did I did for John I I I vented to Jed online. <laughs> he he um, consoled me, <laughs> and uh, I I did another draft. I I, I am two zero in that draft, so maybe my luck is is changing, but. I, it really made me want to research just luck and probability a little bit more because I was feeling I, w- I went through like a, I went five and 12, I guess, over my last uh, 17 games. And it just felt like one improbable event after another. And it just felt I don't know. I didn't even feel like I, I, the frustrating part was I didn't feel like I was playing that poorly. I just felt like. I couldn't draw. There were like just so many games where I was like, okay, I have eight cards in my deck that could win me this game if I draw them over these next five turns. And just game after game, I would just not draw any of those cards. 
sizes. I thought maybe like maybe I shouldn't I just should, shouldn't play CCGs. Maybe I just need to like move to chess or something. Sure. Yeah, permanently. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but also I think everybody goes through really bad periods in this game. Yeah. I know. I know. It's just I was I was getting a little tired of the ups and downs, I think. Well, I've taken step backs from uh, steps back, step backs. I've taken steps back from the game before. Um, just you know, like uh, there were a few weeks there uh, towards the end of the last set where I was only drafting once or twice a week, uh, just mm-hmm. so I kind of still had something to talk about on the show, um, because I wasn't feeling into it. I guess I was feeling a little burnt out on the format and you know I wasn't lo- I wasn't winning consistently and so a lot of the fun was missing for me. There's nothing wrong with stepping back from the game for a bit. Yeah. Yeah, so I think I think uh, that's kind of what I'm doing a little bit where I'm just like yeah, trying to play a little bit less and then make that slightly more quality time <laughs> or something, I don't know. Yeah. It was just it felt, yeah, I, it was just very frustrating because it felt like all the decks that I drafted this week were like ab- above average, you know, average to very good. And I just like could not win a game. And, yeah. And each time it was in the most frustrating way, way possible. Yeah, your deck just wouldn't operate at all. Yeah. yeah. Well, that is frustrating. But I, I survived the week. And like I said, I just drafted. Actually, one of the things that helped was I, I played my first tournament game against Jed for our, our monthly Discord tournament. And those are always, like, a lot of fun. And I'm a lot luckier in those. So, <laughs> so I, I look forward to those. Because I never think my deck's very good, but I always do well in these tournaments. So crushing Jed, really, I think, was the confidence boost. <laughs> a lot more than his kind words. It was... Uh-huh. You're, it's really... You're really just like a whole support system for Patrick. You're really just like, <laughs> if he needs a friend to complain to, you're there. If he needs an opponent to crush mercilessly, you're there. It's really nice. It's Gosh. it's 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 one of the perks of being a Patreon. I think it's specific to the <laughs> the, the support goal that I that I yeah. <laughs> that I subscribe to. Um, yeah. So anyway, speaking of Jed, Jed, how was your week? It's actually been better this week than the past two months combined. <laughs> uh, I'm hovering at kind of a 50% win rate during this format, and part of that was because of success this week. Uh, I had two Aurelian decks, uh, one that I actually played against Hats last night. Um, that both went five and three and had kind of mill sub-themes that were fun for me, probably less fun for my opponents. <laughs> uh, yeah, there was, and uh, both of them I ran against Cosimo, and one of the decks beat him, and one of the decks didn't. So I feel like going one and one against Cosimo is usually makes for a pretty good week. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's definitely been a harder format for me, I think, than what I've experienced with previous ones. Um, and I think similar to what you were describing, Patrick. I feel like the decks themselves, the drafting process has been pretty consistent, plenty of playables. The deck seems like it has an overall strategy. And then it just runs into other decks that are doing things like buying back Edge of Prophecy multiple times or, you know, 
calling out a blade, uh, you know, a Shugo's hooked sword or running me over with flyers backed up by majestic skies. And, uh, you know, it's, or sometimes even like really high roll. I think one of the games I lost in my last draft run was, uh, the crown watch paladin, the two, two ages war cry, the master's sword to fall short my one blocker and just steamroll me from that yeah. point on with the five. Yeah, that, makes that, it, that makes it a five, five, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and then it two turns, it does its, uh, invoke thing and it's just yeah it was really hard to stabilize in that game uh-huh. <laughs> so. yeah yeah and that's i know it's i don't <laughs> even yeah yeah i like had this sweet uh jps deck with uh whatever that two battle skill board wipe card is and i had all of these ways to add battle skills and two of my last losses were just like, I finally stabilized and I have this big board of double battle skills and my opponent has a big board of nothing with battle skills. And then they would just like, the turn I could finally, the turn before I could finally play my, uh, the board wipe, they would play like the two, two Aegis flyer or something. And I'd be like, oh, well now I lose. (laughs) Just like things like, I don't know, things like that's just kept happening. So uh, I I I feel the whole I don't know people just like steamrolling you with like I don't know it feels like the perfect card against you somehow. But I think I, I think to the point about taking a break, taking a step back, playing low stakes games, you know, or playing some other format in Eternal is definitely kind of how I try to approach that variance. Um, and just you know, I think it's for some reason, even though I haven't done as well this format it hasn't felt as bad because i usually feel like the decks the drafting process goes okay um i think i'm usually more frustrated with the format if i can't figure out how to draft Mm. find my lane um or kind of get caught up you know kind of getting pulled in different directions um but feeling good about that process and then just understanding that Sometimes you can't control how well your decks, your opponent's deck kind of like plays out. And so it's just, um, but a lot of the games have, you know, even when I've lost them, they've been pretty close. So it felt like always kind of that prospect of being in there, even when you're kind of describing being ground to dust by, you know, two Electropes and stonewalled by (laughs) plagued Griffiths. It's just like... Sometimes you feel like you're in that game still. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to sit there and suffer with me. (laughs) I'm not going to (laughs) concede. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I, I guess I, I don't, I'm, I'm sort of the opposite where I don't know, like when, when I feel like I'm not quite getting like the drafts aren't coming together. It's, I at least feel like that's a problem I can fix. So that's like sort of a motivational factor to me. It's these when I like feel like my decks are fine and it's just like, I, that's, that was, I think part of my problem this week is I just like felt helpless. I just like, I don't know what I can change. (laughs) It's like, and I don't know. Anyway, that's enough of me complaining. I'm going to try not to do that for, for the rest of the show. Well, at least for the rest of the segment. 
Yeah. So we're on to a new segment now, right? At least until we get to card of the week. <laughs> but the one thing I can never complain about are our patrons over at patreon.com slash farming eternal. For as little as a month, uh, get access to our show, show notes, recording bloopers, as well as nudge us towards our Patreon goals and help support the show, which really does help keep this show running and keeps uh, you know me motivated to do the show and just really helps us out a lot. And so we'd like to give a thank to our veteran patrons. That's Mercurio Blue, Abednego, Meagles, Madness, Titus and Blossom, Parmalee, Darth Herman II, Twin Hex, Cassandrath, Jed the Hamrid, Raven Dragon, Esrid0215, Sunblaze, Worked on Sun, and Yistout. Thank you all for yeah taking the time to support us financially each month. Thank you. Thank you so You're much. You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah, personally. You, From all patrons. <laughs> all right. So, Jed, do you want to say anything about the March Discord? I mean, this month we're doing a sealed tournament. Um, unfortunately, it's the registration has closed, but you know, I hopefully it'll be kind of something that people can look forward to kind of keeping an eye out for next month um, as we, you know, when we eventually figure out what to do. So. Yeah. And how would people be uh, know when another tournament is coming up? They would have to join the Discord, right? That is correct. Or we announce it earlier on the, you know, maybe on the podcast. <laughs> so. Sure. Yeah, so I think joining the Discord, we uh, post an announcement in the tournament discussions channel, um, and then uh, usually try to open it up, announce it to everybody, uh, and then focus it once people you know uh, indicate that they're interested in participating, so that um, people who want to know can find out. All right, and then on to card of the week. So, Hats, what's your card of the week? My card of the week is Bodie and Rocks. Uh, Bodhi and Rocks is a rare. I don't normally pick a rare for card of the week in uh, uh, in a draft discussion, but uh, I just think it's a particularly interesting card, and my heart told me it was the correct one to pick. Uh, so Bodhi and Rocks is a unit. It's a giant. Uh, actually, two giants, but uh, it's just one unit, so no need to confuse everyone, <laughs> as I just have. Uh, it costs seven time time. Uh, it is 9-9. Nine, nine. It has Pledge, which means that uh, on your very first turn, you can use it as a time sigil. And uh, its text is, at the end of your turn, if you have no cards in your hand, draw Bodian Rocks from your deck. Uh, I partly chose this because it, it, there's, uh, I think there's some disagreement uh, out there about, whether, about how good it is, uh, whether it's even good at all. Um, it is just a big, dumb unit that attacks for a lot of damage. Um, and uh, and I have grown to like it more and more as I've played with and against it. It feels extraordinarily powerful to me and a worthy first pick if you see it as the rare in a pack. Um, and that's just because its play pattern is kind of always what you want to be doing. Like if it's in your opening hand, you pretty much always pledge it because uh, it does cost seven and then it does get chump blocked once you bring out that nine nine. Um, but by the time you have emptied your hand, you're probably it's probably exactly what you need. Um, it's you 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 need a finisher when you've emptied your hand. Like you're if you're when you're top decking, you're you're gonna probably want to top deck something big. And Bodian Rocks gets around the whole issue of top decking because it draws itself. It's always your top deck when you need it. Um, and also, it is bigger than anything else in the format. 
uh, for seven power or any other amount of power. It's just the largest thing that you can make. Um, well, I guess uh, the only other one would be the Devourer in the Destruction. Uh, that's a 9-9 nine, nine for six that, that eats other units. Uh, but other than that, I think it's the biggest. So, uh, yeah, I think it's... Um, I think if it were if it were missing any of its individual abilities, like if it wasn't pledge or if it wasn't quite as big as it is, or if it didn't draw itself or any of those things, um, it would be borderline unplayable. But because all of those things are together on a card, it just has a really cohesive design, and I'm always happy to have it in my deck. And I'm always just terrified when I realize that my opponent just drew it after I thought that they were out of cards, and I was. <laughs> that's another thing about it. If I'm playing. Be- thinking that I have card advantage against someone because they're out of cards and I'm keeping pace with them and I'm about to win. The fact that they get a whole free card and it's going to stonewall the ground is is uh, is very strong and it kind of throws off your opponent's plans. So yeah, thumbs up for Bodhi and Rocks. I think it's real good. So where do you fall on the Bodhi and Rocks versus Corpse Bloom? Pack one, pick one, debate. Uh, that's a good question, which I have not thought previously about at all. Probably still take Corpse Bloom. Yeah. yeah I think I it think... gives you a lot of options when it comes into play, and after it gets killed, if anyone can, in fact, kill a 7-7, <laughs> then it's still, it has a really cheap corrupted cost. It only costs three to bounce another thing of your opponent. So I think it just gives you a lot of board control. So still probably Corpse Bloom. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because I'm I'm on Corpse Bloom too, and part of that is also Corpse Bloom has endurance, which I have found to be a very useful keyword in this format. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because a lot of the big units in this format don't really have any type of evasion. Be that, and again, I'm using evasion very broadly to include things like. Yeah, overwhelm or endurance. We're just like in a, you know, they're just like a big dumb guy that can get chump block. While corpse bloom, it attacks and blocks, which I have found to be very important. So I kind of lean that. But the fact that Bodian rocks, you know, draws itself when you most need it, is, you know, a pretty, a pretty neat trick. So. Yeah, and I, I'm I'm pretty high on Pledge as well. I really like having cards with Pledge in my deck because it makes so many more opening hands playable yes and eternal is a game where your opening hands can screw you over pretty easily like in a lot of draft games i have to go in for a second hand and then i have to agonize over that one and having the more pledge cards you have in your deck um the easier those decisions are so i I think i may value pledge a little higher than than some folks all right jed so what's your card of the week um my card for the week is biting winds uh, it is a card that I think I was pretty high on early in the format and have remained very high on, um, even more so as I've gotten to play with it more. Um, you know, one of the film splash time lists that I had this week, um, I had three biting wins and I felt like there wasn't very much that I couldn't deal with, um, as far as opposing problems. Um, you know, it's a card that is very easy to splash and it it, you know it's you know what i would consider a good splash card and that it's okay early you know it's even better late um you know when you'd want to be drawing your splash cards um and the power for them and you know the fact that there's only a handful of units that it can't deal with um like bodian rocks and corpse bloom you know certainly makes 
it a pretty effective and efficient removal spell for primal. Um, and I guess just to remind people, since I didn't mention it off the bat, it's the three primal um, fast spell that deals six damage um, to an attacking enemy. And so the fact that it can also deal with opposing relic weapons, like a Shugo's hooked sword, um, you know, like an early edge of prophecy, um, you know, it just, it, it definitely continues to impress me. And seeing it late in packs is also very surprising, um, since it seems like a great early pickup for, for any, for any deck. And, you know, potentially it's just a circumstance where that person passing to me didn't feel like they could splash forward it late in the pack, but I don't know. It's definitely a card that I am very happy to play. Yeah, I, I I like it a lot too, um, and uh, it's sort of it's sort of an interesting card because I think if it were what lightning strike, which is the the two mana version that does four damage to an incoming attacker, it would still be very good in this format because there's not a lot of things that have exactly six health. You know, it's almost always overkill, uh, except in the case of those relic weapons, which often have like five health or in the case of Edge of Prophecy, exactly six. It almost feels like it was made as insurance against the relic weapon decks, and it works really well against those. Because sometimes you can outright kill someone if they attack you with, and you've got a Biting Winds in hand with like a Fury Blade or something, you know? Yeah. It's just devastating to, to Biting Winds someone in the face when they're already low on life. Um, and uh, so I think it was a really smart... Uh, card to to print in a set that was going to have a lot of relic weapon action. Yeah, it's definitely a card that I keep going up and up on. I mean, we talked about this a little bit last week where you thought, you know, it is a card with a a bit of a ceiling because it's worse against better players. Yeah, and I still think that's true, um, but it's still a good card. <laughs> yes. Yeah, no, and, and I agree with that. And I do think, you know, there's also points where there's only so much an opponent can do to play about around biting winds yeah a little bit so and i for me i think i almost like it better than lightning strike because it feels i mean it's obviously it's one power more expensive but it feels like it can kill anything while lightning strike does sometimes struggle um with things like that um you know, there, there are units and things that dodge a lightning strike that your biting winds can still handle. And especially late game, you know, holding up three power, you know, it becomes, that's what's, I think, to me, nice about biting winds is like later in the game where it's easier to hold up three power, like the, the, the power difference between lightning strike and, and um, biting winds doesn't matter as much, but biting winds still continues to kill everything while lightning strike can sort of get outgrown yeah for sure all right cool so my card of the week is overlook spotter which is the two primal one three with pledge and has the uh when your opponent has 10 units in its void um it gains plus three plus three and uh this is a, a pretty interesting card. I was always like kind of I liked the card, but it never really made my decks a ton, um, especially in the sort of the 8.0 format. But now with this new format, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but 
you know, the number of two drops, especially with the stranger change has lowered. And so, you know, there's more openings available in the two drop slot now that there's fewer um, influence strangers. And the fact that I hadn't really realized this, but this card also has pledge. Yeah. And that is very helpful because like one, you know, if, you know, you're struggling for influence a little bit more. So like, I don't know, just like cards with, and, I don't know, and as always, like just cards with pledge are so good. And the fact that this is on a two drop is kind of interesting because, you know, when you have a two power hand, you're like, well, I could play my overlook spotter, you know, which is a, a bit of a tension. But the fact that it's also, you know, pledge on a two drop doesn't feel as bad because it doesn't feel like you're pledging away your like late game bomb. It just feels like you're pledging away a, a more expendable card. And so... I don't know. I, I've been like very impressed with how how flexible this card has been. It, you know, it blocks all the two twos. It grows bigger in the late game. And in a pinch, when you have a spotty opening hand, you know, it does the job of, you know, adding a power that you that you vitally need to make your hand playable. So uh, this is my sort of my plug for Overlook Spotter and how I think, especially in this new 8.1 format. You know, it's moving up. I confess I have never put it in a deck. Um, I I agree with your assessment of it, and that's how I always think about the card, but then it just never has, has made the cut somehow. I kind of thought that Mill would be easier to draft in this format than it ended up being. I've seen people draft effective Mill decks, um, and I've tried myself, but it just never really came together for me, at least not as easily as it did last format, so... I, I still think of it as a mill card rather than a, a card that uh, just naturally grows much larger in the late game because there's a lot of games where you just never get to 10 cards in the void. But it's true that it's harder to come across two drops in this format. It's often very difficult to get that two drop slot looking good. So it's a good candidate if I if I end up in primal. The other reason is that I just don't I have not seen any since the 8.1 shift. I don't think I've seen a single Overlook spotter in any of my packs, so it hasn't even been an option. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's one of, that was one of the deceiving things about the card is because it was so easy to view it as a mill card mm -hmm. instead of just like viewing it as like a fine two drop that gets much better in the late game and can be a power when you need it to be. Sure. You know, like if you. If you, I feel like if you describe it that way, you're like, oh, wow, that sounds like a pretty good card. But then when you're just like drafting it, you're like, eh, it's a 1-3. Uh, it really needs mill to really get its ability to activate. And you kind of like, you lose the, you know, the forest for the trees almost with the card. Yeah, I had a copy of that in one of the decks, the 5-3 and three deck that I had this week that was fairly mill heavy. Um, and it did a good job of clogging up the early ground so that Wretched Ravens could attack and not have to sit back and block. Um, and then once there were a couple couple Wretched Raven swings, it held off pretty much everything else um, that my opponent was trying to play, um, you know, as, you know, threatening double blocks against bigger units, you know, as a 4-6. Yeah. And there were many times where I pledged it looking at two power and was like, yep, this is this is a great way to keep this hand that otherwise would be sketchy. And so it, it almost reminds me a little bit of the power of mining team in that it's has multiple modes mm -hmm. um, that when you 
kind of like individually, they may not kind of come together. Um, but the fact that mining team had warp and scout and, you know, could be played for its, you know, what, four and a fire and, you know, or just warped for two, um, shifted for, two. you know, shifted. Yeah. Shifted for two. Um, it, it just helped overperform. Um, you know, I think that, and the fact that this tends to be a longer, grindier format, the fact that there you may be more likely to get your opponent to naturally get to ten cards, you know, especially with the corrupted units contributing kind of two cards to the void. Um, it certainly seems more possible that its upside will be realized as opposed to it always just being the one three for two. Yeah, I just noticed something interesting. Uh, I, I'd forgotten that Spore Spitter also has Pledge. That's the other common that uh, that gets a lot better when your opponent has 10 or more cards in their void. It's just <laughs> interesting that they gave both of those cards Pledge. Um, sort of like, we know that these are sometimes not going to be great cards at the beginning of the game, so just Pledge them, and then when you draw them later, they're going to be good because you'll have 10 cards in your opponent's void. Uh, just an interesting design choice that way. Yeah. Yeah, and I think yeah, I don't this is another small thing, but I think the fact that yeah, primal and shadow have so many good sort of double influence cards makes the pledge for these cards a little bit better, especially like as we I keep mentioning, you know, the influence strangers are gone, so like hitting your double influence is is a little bit harder now. So these I think pledge units go up in value a little bit for me. Yeah, for sure. All right, so let's move on to our seven-win run breakdown. This is our long-standing data collection project here at Farming Eternal, where we collect everyone's seven-win drafts, and you, um, anyone can send them in to either farmingeternal at gmail.com or the seven-win channel on our Farming Eternal Discord in either exported decklist form or as an Eternal Warcry link. And then we take this information, we put it into a spreadsheet, we have uh, two spreadsheets. We have a faction-by-faction faction breakdown spreadsheet, which kind of tells us what factions are doing well, what faction pairs, what tri-factions are doing well. And I think that's really helpful to figure out, like, what sort of decks are doing well this format, and um, as well as a card-by-card -card breakdown. Um, this, of course, um, is all up in the air now that we just switched formats to 8.1. and. Um, we're going to give it a couple weeks, I think, to see if it was a major, it was like a big enough sheet to warrant a total new spreadsheet because it was, it felt like a major shakeup. But then when you look at the changes, you're just like, I don't, I don't, I don't know how big of a shakeup it was, but I think we're going to keep them separate. And since we are keeping them separate, we don't have, we don't have enough deck lists really to say anything about. Um, so we're not going to go deep into that this uh, this episode. Yeah, and because we're not really ready with the new list just yet, uh, we thought we'd take this the time, or we'd use this segment to talk about the new changes to the draft packs. So I think the big change, which we've already mentioned, is the fact that the influence strangers are have gone from six x to three x in the draft packs. So the changes to the draft packs, they didn't add any new cards. So all they did were change some rarities. And so the big changes um, that I think are on the forefront of everyone's minds are the fact that the influence strangers moved from 6x to 3x. And 
the uncommon strangers move from 12x to 6x, which just means there's a lot less influence, um, there's a lot less fixing, and there's a lot um, fewer strangers. Would yeah? Would we agree to that? Uh, yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's the biggest change overall of, of, of from all of the stuff that they did. Just making the strangers uh, half as likely to show up is huge. Um, I think one of the biggest sort of I think one of the most frustrating decks to play against when you encountered it in the wild was the deck that just managed to get all the strangers together and then just run you over. Uh, that's a lot less likely to happen now. Uh, it's a lot harder to draft. Uh, the other change that that hit me right away when I started drafting this format without really adjusting for it is that the with half the the two two strangers in the packs, it's really hard to get that two drop uh, slot together because there's not a lot of two drops in this format, not nearly as many good ones as in the last format. There's the same like you can still pick up like intrepid longhorns and uh, you know Ricano artisans and stuff. Uh, if you if you're lucky enough to be in those colors when you see them, um, but uh, the but the in general the two drops are not strong in this format, and so taking out a bunch of them means that that early game um, is really going to go to the person who did a better job of that sometimes, and it, I feel that a lot stronger now than before the shift. Um, so I've tried to adjust for that and like sometimes take cheaper cards uh, instead of more powerful, expensive cards. Because I was pretty set on drafting slow, grindy decks in the 8.0 format, and I think those are not quite as strong. Um, you know, I feel like I'm contradicting myself because... Well, that gets into the second point, which is that aggro cards are have been a little boosted in general. Like, uh, there's some cards in the set now, like Oni Samurai and Gaudy Showman and traditional aggro cards that are slightly more common. Uh, Oni Samurai was at, like, one times rarity, and now it's at three times. So it's showing up three times as often, and that makes a big difference if you're trying to draft an aggressive deck. So um, so I feel like the you... Like you have to work hard to pick up some early game to defend yourself against the decks that are now more effectively aggressive. It's a slight shift. All of the stuff they did was small, but it adds up to um, a set where you slightly have to reprioritize. Yeah, what's weird to me is um, the Warbrush Oni went down. It did. Which felt like it kind of contradicted what they were going with with a bunch of the changes where they were trying to make like aggressive fire cards a little bit or aggressive I guess Rokano cards a little bit better. Yeah. Um, well I don't think of Warbrush Oni as an aggressive card. It's a tempo loss, you know, you play it as a two one. But it was very good with Oni synergy. <laughs> yes. Um yeah, no, I guess that's true. But I mean I guess what I mean is not that it's an aggressive card, but like you were saying there's just like fewer two drops and um and so just the fact that they would take a, a a two drop and lower it was a little bit surprising to me um especially when they were adding in a bunch of you know uh, i don't know powerful early fire cards yeah maybe they were trying not to oversteer uh too much when they made these shifts 
Mm-hmm. Like they felt like if they wanted to to boost Gaudy Showman and Oni Samurai, they didn't also want Warbrush Oni in there and just have a repeat of uh, Rakano Oni being the best deck. Maybe. Right. Yeah. You know, I don't know what kind of how much thought goes into each one of these changes. Yeah. Yeah, I think, and then the other sort of speaking on these aggro cards getting a little more common, there are a couple more tricks now. You know, Metal and Desperate Gambit is back. Um, Funeral Pyre as another damage spell um, got boosted a little bit more. There's a couple more weapons now. Uh, I think the best of the bunch is the Blackguard's Sidearm, which is the... um, the shadow uh three shadow two one with get and gives quick draw so it does seem like they they did add a couple um actual uh you not relic weapons but unit weapons into the draft pack so that'll give at least a little bit more diversity in um in gameplay in that sense i think yeah, I, I think the one of the big things that was missing for uh, for more aggressive or tempo-based decks was having enough tricks and unit weapons to to keep those cheap units at the beginning relevant into the mid game. Um, it was re- that was to me the biggest thing keeping those kind of decks from succeeding. But over the last week, I've had two uh, seven-win decks, and one of them was uh, was Rakano Oni's essentially couple of Oni Samurai and enough tricks to back them up. And um, I, I don't, I feel like that deck would have been really hard to draft successfully in the, in the last format. And because it had a good one drop, then suddenly it was uh, relevant again. And then I had enough uh, just sort of backup for it to make it good. I don't remember everything that was in it, but I know I was playing a desperate gambit or two and that, that helps a lot. Yeah. Just being able to actually, yeah, have a card that you can, just, just being able to do damage out of nowhere is helpful. Yeah, and Desperate Gambit does a lot of damage out of nowhere sometimes. Yeah. And I even before these changes, I was kind of feeling that maybe Stone Scar was the place to look at for these aggressive decks because, you know, you do see so many of the um, the Knife Lady, the 2-1 that goes to a 4-3 if it has a battle skill. And, you know, I felt like there was... There could be a deck there with some fire cards, some some shadow cards, and now that you have, you know, a, like a you put you play that on two, you play a blackguard sidearm on three on it, and now it is a six four with quick draw. Yeah, um, yeah, pretty good. Seems pretty good. So, you know, I think that's something to look for, and you know, the, those especially that lady, she she goes pretty late, so. I don't know. I'm going to maybe try that if I can ever win another game of Eternal. Yeah. Yeah, that might be your way back in. <laughs> just just draft aggro. Gonna run yeah. people over. Yeah. It's been successful for you in the past, right, Patrick? <laughs> it has been. It, it's, it's been. it has helped me. Um, maybe that's the missing piece in all of this. Yeah, and then there's a couple interesting things. Um, you know, you mentioned here in the show notes that you think sacrifice is better. A little bit. Yeah, it's subtle. Yeah, it's subtle, and it's a weird thing. And I don't know, like with these changes where they they boosted some sacrifice cards, but then they also subtracted from some sacrifice sort of 
related cards. So it, it, it's like really hard just to like look at it and tell what exactly they were going for, whether they were trying to boost it or lower it. Um, I think they were trying to balance a few different things where they were trying to, I, I think they were aware that, uh, that time as a faction was overpowered. And so they tried to weaken it overall, but they also tried to boost some strategies that necessarily include time. So they tried to shift, uh, like the the cards that are more common in time. Uh, two of those are proselytize and ardent convert. Proselytize makes two tokens, or you can decimate to draw two more tokens. And ardent convert is the one one for one with exalted. And uh, those are pretty good cards in a sacrifice deck. Not like amazing, but good. And uh, and so those are going to be more common now. And that weakens time because they're not great cards on their own but it also like sort of pushes you towards if you're gonna play time hey have you considered sacrifice rather than just playing relics uh, it, it's not a, a clear message by any means but it feels like they were uh, they were trying to do a couple of different things at a time and then they only have so many tools to work with you know there's only so many dials to turn uh, and especially since they were getting rid of the most complicated rarities uh, they just sort of shifted things a little bit. Um, and I think that's, again, uh, they're trying, probably trying to avoid oversteering and creating other problems so they didn't do anything dramatic. I mean, even making these little changes is kind of a big deal. Like, I've seen some decks that just try to run me over with Ardent Converts at the very beginning because they just sort of all, you know, you kill one and it gloms onto the other one and that gloms onto some other dangerous thing like a flyer. Uh, that's happened to me a lot in this format. It's just these, like, Ardent Convert, uh, like, what's the the Prospector that turns into a 3-3 three, three when you, when you uh, play a Relic? Like, like, it's, like, the deck is just full of time one-drops now, and it just, like, destroys me. And that didn't, that didn't happen before the shift. It was impossible to make that deck, and now I see it all the time somehow. I don't mm -hmm. expect anyone else to have seen it all the time. They're just coming after me with it. But it's still, like, it's sort of a new deck. And they only had to make some small changes for that thing to exist. But they also yeah. made Direwood Prowler, the 5-5 the five, five for 6 that uh, that eats a, a unit and draws two cards. And Soul Collector, which grows every time anything dies, a little bit more common. Which suggests, again, sacrifice. Yeah, and then the other major change in time is uh, Horn of Plenty is a little less common. So these go-wide strategies are not are probably slightly less strong. You know, they also took away, um, they lowered the 1-3 uh, Endurance Flyer. And so, you know, that does hurt the, um, the Majestic Skies deck, yeah. which the Horn of Plenty nerf also hurts a little bit. So... Yeah, and I'm pretty happy about that because uh, that's that's a pretty strong deck, and yes, I'm I'm perfectly happy to see a little bit less of it. Yeah, I agree. Then this is a weird one, but they really nerfed the curses deck. Yeah, they they took a deck that was bad and really took the legs out from under it. Yeah, <laughs> and what's weird is like with the curses deck, like the thing holding I felt well holding it back is maybe too strong of a word, but there just were no curses in the format, more or less. And uh, I guess maybe it's just they accepted the fact that they forgot to put any curses into Expedition. And um, 
And so they took out sort of two of the payoff. They lowered two of the payoff cards in Calamity Oracle and Skywalk Enforcer. Um, you know, they 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 couldn't lower the appearance rate of Agent of Purpose. So no. they had to. That's just going to be another just sort of a, a blank uncommon for anyone who opens one. Yeah. Uh, one kind of interesting thing is they buffed Permafrost, but... I kind of feel like perma. This is the worst format for permafrost, and so this doesn't feel actually like as exciting of a of a boost as it normally would to me. It's a good removal spell as long as you're not playing against any justice deck, uh, because <laughs> siege provisions just cancels out all of your permafrosts. Yeah, um, yeah, it's not a, it's not the best environment for it. It's still a powerful card, but yeah, it can get canceled out. Plus, it's a sacrifice sort of a format, too, now. So uh, it's at its worst, but it's still one 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 power removal spell. So yes. I'm still going to be picking them up. Yes. You, no, you definitely are. But but it's not like as like, oh, as strong. It's not as strong of a get as it would be in so far any other format that we've really played. Um, and then I guess I guess we kind of talked about the faction shifts and stuff. Really, the only other theme that I noticed was that spell damages got taken down a peg as well. Uh, Boltcaster Shaman and Iceberg Warchief are kind of the big um, spell damage buffs in the curated draft packs, and then the payoffs, which are Rock Slide and Reverberating Strike, are now less. All of those, all four of those cards are less common, and those were all pretty good for the. Um, for the spell damage deck, especially Reverberating Strike. Also, Reverberating Strike has that combo with Touch of Battle, uh, where you can do a one-sided wipe of your opponent's board. So I'm perfectly happy to see less of it in this format, because that's not really a fair combo for limited. Yeah, except as far as I could tell, it was mathematically impossible to draw both of those cards at the same time. Oh, sure, yeah. I mean, they probably programmed something in so that only Pachi or Cosimo can do it. But... Uh... <laughs> In my, in my experience uh but uh <laughs> uh but still i've had both of them in the same deck and i've and i've taken them both out of my final build because i'm just like no nah, it's never gonna happen <laughs> it's not worth it yeah it's not worth it to put the heartache of like playing through all of the games of this draft and never drawing both of them I'm just sitting there looking at my reverberating strike going, all I need to do is draw a touch of battle to keep from getting overrun by my opponent's superior cards. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is not related to this topic at all, but I feel like touch of battle has gone down in my estimation a lot since the beginning of this format. I don't know if that's fair or not, but I felt like the first couple weeks of the format, it always felt very powerful against me and I both see it less and I'm like when I have it in my deck I'm just I'm often like well I don't really have any great synergies with it and I end up cutting it and I don't know if that's right but it's just like not it hasn't felt as like an exciting or powerful card as it once did to me yeah, I don't know if it's. I I still like it. Um, it I it de- it does depend on what I have in my deck. Not just uh, to give something powerful like some spell uh, deadly, but if I have a lot of uh, cards like um, 
like the like the stranger that um, like the one two stranger that gives you any um, any color any color yeah. of influence uh, like uh, like a lot of cards like that where they become kind of disposable but then maybe I can trade for a big attacker if I have a touch of battle on them sort of that kind of thing then I'm more likely to play it um, but uh, yeah all of the touches I think seemed a lot better at the beginning of the format than they do now but I still think touch of battle is probably the best one. They yeah, all the have Justice their, one sort of hard uses. counters all my Electropy decks, which has been a little <laughs> frustrating. Has that happened to you? Yes. Well, that's amazing. Yeah, I'm telling you, I've had the worst. It's. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Jed, I feel like we've kind of left you out of this conversation. Do you have any thoughts on the changeover? I don't. I'm learning right right now about it, and so I'm glad to be kind of hearing about this firsthand. <laughs> okay. <laughs> as far as I really haven't looked at uh, the change list very much, and I think the biggest thing that you guys mentioned that I've noticed is just the lack of influence strangers. Like now, I maybe see one or two that I might pick up, as opposed to like a pack full of them or something like that. Where it's just like, and I think that. Yeah, I've only played two or three drafts of this brand newish, brand newish format. Um, so, uh, yeah. yeah, I don't think I have too much else to add other than what you guys have described. Yeah, and I, sort of my final question that I had was: so, do you feel like this the influence strangers leaving has shifted the kind of decks you want to draft? Are we? Should we be looking to draft more two color than than sort of the solidly three color decks that we were able to draft in eight point zero? Because one of the things that um, you know we noticed is in the Echoes of Eternity cards, there are a lot of double influence cards, and so even though we had the influence strangers, you know, one of the things it was still hard to draft like a four or five color deck even though the influence was as good as it as it was in like say 6.5 and i think part of that was how many double influence cards there were and so now that we're losing a lot of our access to easy influence you know i'm kind of wondering if if we're going to have to start focusing much more on being a two color deck with maybe a light splash i guess so i'm i, I don't have the most objective um, point of view on this because I wasn't really drafting four or five faction decks anyway. Um, yeah. But I guess I, I was drafting some fairly evenly split three faction decks here and there, and it did help to have those strangers uh, to make those more consistent. Um, the two decks that I've uh, that I've had the most success with in this format have been uh, have been straight two faction and then two-faction with a light splash so far. Um, and that, that's very anecdotal, uh, so it's not really enough to say, yeah, that's definitely what I should be going with. But um, at this point, yeah, I, I, I feel a lot better uh, going with two factions with a light splash than I do um, just kind of going crazy with, with getting the most powerful picks. But I've also seen some people... Uh, turning in some seven zero decks on the discord with that are still playing four factions, you know, just three, um, three split factions with a, with a, with a splash for the fourth and that kind of thing. So um, like it, even with half the strangers in the format, 
We still have all of the other fixing at the usual rarity. All of the tokens are still there, all of the banners, all of the seats. Um, and so it, it wasn't reduced by like 50%. It was yeah. much a much smaller percentage. Ancient Manual was lowered. Ancient Manual was lowered. And I think uh, no one was really playing Ancient Manual, so it doesn't matter as much. <laughs> it's also a format where you need double influence on a lot of things. So Ancient Manual is surprisingly terrible. All right, Jed. Now I think we're we're ready for your time to shine here. So uh, excellent. Yeah, glad to be here. <laughs> yes, so welcome. Uh, welcome, welcome, welcome. Yeah. So the main reason we wanted to have you on was to to talk about your community draft rating survey, as well as maybe some conclusions or interesting trends you saw in that. So I guess uh, first off. I think I, I want to ask before oh, we oh. Uh, before yep. we ask anything. What what is it? That was the first question. What do you mean before we ask anything? <laughs> well, then this is the first question. <laughs> what is the community draft survey? <laughs> just in sync, in complete sync, like a hive mind. Uh, <laughs> so this survey is basically I created a Google form that. Uh, people can rank uh, or choose a rating of each card in the Echoes of Eternity format and allow them to rank it, uh, rate it based on their sense of its relative power level um, for a draft format. Um, and, you know, and so it basically moves through each of the factions um, and then it submits it so that I can kind of download that data into a Google spreadsheet um, and then learn a lot about Google Sheets in order to crunch numbers uh, <laughs> on their responses, which I think has been the most eye-opening aspect of this is figuring out how to operate a spreadsheet. Um, that was not something I realized was going to be part of what I was t undertaking when I when I started this project. Um, the true value of, the, of this whole endeavor, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I can add it to my resume going forward. <laughs> <laughs> I can now do equals count if and you know all of these other elaborate things <laughs> sometimes i just search for it and have to copy and paste i don't understand how it works but <laughs> it gives me a number <laughs> that i believe is accurate so um you know, but yeah it's been pretty interesting uh, i got this idea from um a similar magic the gathering project um that has been going on for quite some time um and, you know, had the idea to translate that into, um, you know, the, the, this eternal project. Um, and my hope is, is that with the interest, you know, I can build on that and, you know, plan to repeat this with um, future sets, um, especially, I think, as learning about developing the survey and pumping information into the spreadsheet and making it, you know, usable in some fashion. Um, should help decrease the amount of work that kind of goes into it and make it more more manageable because you know I was working on this during February and I think I did three drafts during the entire month of February because <laughs> like my evenings were consumed with getting this getting this up and running. But yeah, you were kind of drafting vicariously. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, so how uh, so. Uh, what's what is the rating system? Uh, how did you decide on on using this rating system? So um, 
I've looked at several different rating systems, and I think the challenge about rating systems is general in general is there are a lot of different ones. Kalebovich has a one through ten rating system, which you know, kind of this is a one through ten based system. Um, Eternal Warcry, few people probably realize this, but has a card rating system built into its project that that's one to ten. Um, Team Draft Chat has one that's grade based, um, similar to uh, limited resources, the Magic, the Gathering, uh, drafting podcast. That's all grade based, and that you know Eternal Journey uses that one for their um, card evaluations. Um, and so, basically, tried to take highlights and things that I thought were valuable about each of those um, to try to consolidate that into the one through 10 system um, that I kind of put together for this. Um, and, you know, overall it's subjective, which I think any rating system would be. Um, but, you know, I tried to help define the grades and the ratings um, for people filling out the survey so they have some sense of, well, what criteria should I use to rate this card? You know, is it not, mm -hmm. is it just like, is, is this card a nine? What does that mean? Um, and so, you know, I basically tried to kind of take things that seemed like good priorities that might suggest prioritizing this pick, you know, at a certain point in the draft over other cards. And, you know, honestly, for me, I think that, you know, we all try to make sure that our early picks are strong, you know, have will have a certain kind of significant impact on the game um, and, you know, have a higher likelihood of making our final deck just independent of their kind of individual power level. Um, so kind of splashability and all of that kind of factors in um, to the rating system that I kind of crafted as far as the definitions of each of the ratings. Okay, what are some of the definitions of the ratings? Yeah, so um, for example, you know, 10 out of 10 is described as a bomb. You know, I think that's a term that is, you know, it's a um, not well-defined for someone new coming in who may have no experience of kind of card rating systems, what exactly is a bomb. Um, so basically just kind of saying it's, you know, it's always going to be a card that you're going to try to play, you know, if it's your main color. And if you pick it early and you don't see that as being one of your main colors, you're going to prioritize splashing for it so that um, it can have a higher chance of making your final deck. Um, and it's one that, you know, for most people, bombs, they excel in many game situations, you know, in past episodes, the whole um, phase theory, quadrant theory, whatever you want to call it. Um, but really good potentially at pulling you out of a hole um, or breaking a board stall. Um, so, you know, one of the examples that I gave was Crystallize. You know, it's it's a double influence card, but, um, you know, and so, but it's definitely one that if you pick it, you know, you're, you're having that in your final deck, kind of no matter what the other power level of the cards might be, is typically going to kind of outshine um, cards. So, you know, I think that kind of is the vein that kind of a 10 out of 10 might come from. Um, and then, you know, some of the other ones really are focusing on, you know, varying degrees of power um, and how much you might prioritize splashing it or what 
you know, more likely might be an early cut from your deck. Um, you know, so for example, like a great card, which I'm defining at eight out of 10, you know, worth splashing for it if able, but you're not necessarily going to prioritize picking, fixing over other good cards to try to make it fit into your final deck. But usually those are easier cards to splash, like Grodos Favorite or Streets of Flame, where they're going to have more of an impact later in the game when you would be hoping to splash and play those splash cards. Um, you know, whereas, you know, filler cards are ones that you are not going to be happy to be playing um, and are typically seen as kind of the last few picks in a pack. But, you know, if you're short on playables, they might have to be fit in, um, you know, but would be among the first cuts like a Yeti Griffin Rider. Um, or they might have more of a situational effect or a varied power level, depending on some of the other synergies you, you might have um, in your deck. So, you know, that's kind of a three out of ten, you know, as far as you know, that perspective. When I took the... I, I filled out the form for this, and what made it a lot easier for me to pick a number for cards was just putting it in terms of how likely it was to make the final cut in the deck. Like, that was the most helpful part of the categories for me. Um, and I don't know if that's just because I'm a little bit more of an experienced um, drafter, so I tend to think of I tend to think of cards in those terms rather than in like overall power level. But that was that made it possible for me to pick numbers for a lot of the cards that otherwise would be so synergy dependent that I couldn't imagine like giving them one specific number rather than a whole range was just that uh, just that part of the categorization. This is how likely is it to actually be in a deck at the end of this whole draft? Yeah, and I think that that's one of the things that I really I didn't you know some grading systems have built in like other grades like synergy grades or build around grades and i think it's harder to have too many categories um and still have it be able to be easy to fill out um and it's just and so i think that you know one card that i often think of is kodash sees all is technically a synergy card i mean it has a scalable power level with more curse synergies because you know seven justice justice cursed relic that at the uh, beginning of your opponent's turn puts a one one griffin into play um you know or the you know power and toughness equal to um the number of curses your opponent has it's kind of a mediocre effect on its own but you know clearly can scale as you would have more curses that would hang around in play to make bigger and bigger units but I think, you know, it's if you assign that a builder round grade, it wouldn't necessarily kind of highlight just how it has an independently kind of strong effect on the game. And so I think that it, for me, the way that I kind of approach synergy cards just in general from card evaluation is how much, what's the setup cost to make this good to sure. kind of want to keep it in my deck um, if I don't have some of those other synergies. Um, versus, uh, you know, if, you know, if it's too high of a setup cost, I'm not going to be picking that early, um, versus, you know, a card that can stand alone on its own, like Kodo sees all, you know, would have a relatively higher grade in my opinion, where you would want to prioritize picking it early, um, you know, or see that as a clear signal that, you know, this color is open because this is a powerful card that's coming late. Um, and so that's where I think one part of, you know, 
just rating systems in general, they're kind of just a part of overall card evaluation um, that, you know, try to synthesize multiple things, um, which can make them maybe more difficult to complete for a less experienced, limited player um, and less but helpful to that person when they're reviewing the grades, but less necessary to kind of receive that information for a more experienced uh, limited player. You know, it's like you're less dependent on the like a rating system to say, this is why I should pick this card because you might be at a place where you're building your deck and you're picking cards that are meant to go into your deck rather than just picking the overall most powerful cards. And that's not necessarily the criteria you're using. Um, and so it's interesting that, you know, I think this is, you know, potentially one of the weaknesses of this project is it really wants experienced players to actually do the ratings so that less experienced players can use that information and learn from that. Right. Um, because, you know, but I think the fact that you're, I'm trying to collect multiple perspectives even if a less experienced player says, I want to fill this out, they can then compare their results with what other people are saying and incorporate that into how they're interpreting the overall draft environment and their own card evaluation. So I think that the idea that you're collecting a, a much broader kind of um, set of responses um, would help flatten that out and kind of, you know, I think that kind of shows up some in, in the responses, um, you know, that not everybody agrees, but there is groupings of agreement that, that can kind of help kind of anchor people as to, you know, what more people are thinking about kind of, you know, how these cards stack up against each other and in just the, you know, limited in general. Yeah, it, it's kind of interesting. I feel like rating systems are sort of a controversial topic in in among drafters where some people don't like giving cards ratings and some people do. And so I guess I was wondering like, so what was your, like, how do you hope people use this data that you're, you're collecting? So I think my biggest hope is that people look at it and say, gosh, you know, half of the people that rated this card rated this card X. That's not what I was thinking about this card. And then it might prompt them to think about the card differently. Because I think as we see in Discord, someone posts a pick, what should I pick here? And sometimes it's very clear. You know, you don't need a rating system to tell you like, well, I should pick Corpse Bloom out of this pack because there's really nothing else that stands up to its power level. Um, but when you have a variety of people who are using their experience to kind of say, I really value this card and this is why, or I really value this card and this is why it allows people, I think, to try to kind of take in that information and then try hopefully reflect on their own approach to picking a card or stop and think. And if they have the ability to post in something like a discord, either in the main eternal one or the, um, you know, farming eternal discord or eternal journey, you know, that they, they have that, um, you know, they can just question more what their evaluations of the card is going to be um, and kind of why they might be picking it. Because you know, I think there are a lot of strange cards in this format in particular um, that I think on the surface are hard to evaluate. 
Um, and when you only get to draft a handful of drafts and, you know, you're worried about losing your gold um, and trying to make that back, trying to kind of pull in a lot of different information maybe ho- lowers the barrier to people um, feeling comfortable moving through that process. Um, and so, you know, I think that clearly rating systems are not the end all and be all of card evaluation. Um, and they kind of clearly have limitations, but they're also something that people ask about too. Like the number of posts I see on the on Reddit that are like, has anybody released a draft tier list for um, this format yet? You know, it's, I think it's just, when you only get a snapshot of one person's kind of perspective and you're not able to compare it across multiple perspectives, it provides somewhat of a limited scope because, you know, even my own anecdotal experience with a card, you know, playing a handful of drafts a month, um, you know, I still have questions. I'm like, <laughs> you know, I'd never played with Marizo before, <laughs> for yeah. example. And it's not like, you know, if you break it down and think about it, you could see that that's a very powerful card, but in some ways it, you need to be shown that. And I think if I were to see that somebody rated that like a 10 out of 10, um, it you might not have tried to why. cut two copies of them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And then, you know, but it, so it's, I think that sometimes, and that's one of the other things like that, you know, kind of just looking at this, there's a lot of cards that, people kind of don't have experience with even in this current draft format and you know obviously this was done i think i released this a week after the format dropped and so i think there were you know a a fair bit of experience with the cards but like no one's gonna know that that nine cost fire weapon it's like (laughs) uh that's like a nine seven or something like some crazily expensive weapon um that is a legendary uh and you know i think that it's you know who knows if like where that fits um what is the card shavka's embrace um and you know it's it's one of the cards that had the biggest delta of, of responses and the least agreement about how powerful it was um because you know, it can kill everything in the format, but will you ever cast it? You know, it's just like, it's, so I think that that's, that's where some of these, you know, potentially someone can say, I've had experience with this card. Like I've never played with Bodian Rocks, but I I think after hearing some breakdown, you know, I could stop and say, well, some people value this card. Some people are more questionable on it. And I think it kind of highlights the ways that, um, both individual drafters can kind of value certain strategies and certain card effects, um, but you're kind of trying to control for that by getting multiple multiple opinions so that, you know, you can potentially try the card and have some understanding of, like, how, how it might stack up afterwards. So. Have you gotten any feedback from uh, from from uh, less experienced drafters, uh, beginning drafters, on whether the whether the spreadsheet has been helpful for them? I haven't specifically. Um, you know, when I go and open the spreadsheet that I shared um, on Reddit, the results version, 
Um, like I have a separate like master list that I have a whole bunch of test stuff in. And But when I condensed it down into kind of a single sheet with just a couple tabs and some instructions, um, when I go to that, there's usually like seven to eight like little uh, um, users. Little colorful cursors, yeah. So I, I mean, there's clearly people who are using it, um, which is encouraging. But yeah, I haven't gotten any specific feedback um, about how helpful it's been. Um, I've gotten feedback that, you know, people individually say, oh, yeah, I largely kind of agree with um, all that. And, you know, and then, then people who are the other thing that, the, that I'm trying to provide in the spreadsheet is a little bit of showing my work and kind of showing the raw data so that if someone wants to look at it, um, one of the other patrons, uh, who's a patron, been active member in the Discord, Avgots, um, you know, he wants, he, he talked with me, he's given me some feedback about the data analysis. And, you know, he's told me he's kind of looking at it to try to see if he can kind of analyze the data in a certain way. And so, you know, I think the other thing is it's just more information that people can try to um, use for their own content creation as well. Um, you know, this isn't my project that, you know, I'm supposed to go on a, you know, the the parade of podcasts and you know all of that stuff to try to talk about it and and own all that um you know this is really a, my my hope for this too is that it's kind of something that members of the community can take and incorporate and say hey i looked at this and i found this really interesting kind of trend that um you know may have influenced or changed how i understood the format um but you know i think a lot of people have also felt like it helps kind of like check their gut assessments because they may not be able to say like have a draft team or something like that that they can kind of bounce a bunch of ideas off of so speaking of seeing trends what are there any things you kind of wanted to highlight from the results that you got what i'd like to talk about maybe is just kind of um the spreadsheet itself first okay uh, and so there's a bunch of uh um filterable columns so that people can filter based on the card name, the faction, um, you know, the rarity of the cards. And then the statistical breakdowns are just kind of common things like the average of all the ratings, um, as well as the most common or mode of the ratings. Um, and I find that those two are very interesting to compare sometimes um, because something that might have a wide distribution might then average out to kind of a middling rating. But if you look at the most common ratings, um, you know, there might be a grouping of those that are significantly different. Um, and then I tried to represent that, too, with a percentage of agreement um, based on the mode. Um, it doesn't clearly account for multiple modes. And so, like, say, if a card has its most common ratings, it has four sevens and four eights out of ten. Uh, it the spreadsheet doesn't do that math to say that, well, there's a lot of agreement about this card being a seven to eight out of 10, um, but it's demonstrated there. So people can kind of use that to say, oh yeah, most people agree that it's at about this rating and it's a pretty strong agreement. Um, and then that's just basically kind of the, the mode count, you know, the most common response over the total number of responses of which I've had 13 so far, you know, it's, I, I was surprised. I was 
I'm very pleased to to get that level of response. Um, and I also found that it's kind of a, interesting that there the one there were two sets of cards that pretty much had the exact same ratings, um, like across all of them, and they're the tokens and the chance. And so, like their distribution graphs are all exactly the same. And so everybody who rated the tokens, each person rated them the same number. There was one person who rated one of the chants higher than the others. So I'm not sure what, <laughs> what I think it was the creation chant. So maybe they, at that point, they were valuing, valuing the armory deck <laughs> a little higher um, or the ability to splash for that. Um, but it, it kind of shows me that people just weren't willy nilly kind of like completing the survey um, that, you know, people were taking the time to say, oh, yeah. Like, why wouldn't, why would I rate one token differently than another? So it wasn't kind of like just random completion. You know, I, I, thinking mm -hmm. back on it, I did rate all of the tokens equally, but now, but that was before I had a strong feeling about how lopsided the factions were. And so now I would rate some of the tokens uh, more highly than others because I'm more likely to be actually playing them in my final deck. So a token of creation, I think would probably go up at least one from the others <laughs> interesting well, talking of tradition help. as well yeah <laughs> well and i think that's the other thing is that um you know it's again we, there is the function the ability to edit your response which if anybody's industrial enough to do that um i haven't figured out a great system to update the entire spreadsheet to kind of adapt for those like significant changes um, like I said, a lot of this is still a work in process as far as implementation. Um, but, you know, it's uh, one that hopefully will have other iterations that can kind of be improved and become more um, uh, more functional and responsive to kind of changing perspectives. And everything uh, you've learned about um, setting this up is going to apply when the next set comes out. So it'll kind of all be ready to go. Yeah, I think a lot of the a lot of the work was really focused on the um, you know the rating system itself because that kind of defined everything that I was doing, um, and so yeah, so yeah, hopefully it'll be just much smoother, much easier once once the next set drops in a couple of months. And I have no plans like after thinking about it, I have no plans that really I think I don't know if it's practical or helpful to do draft packs. I think they're just too large. And like this was over 200 cards. Yeah. And so I think I can't imagine rating all of those. I thought about doing just the boosted cards, but now that they've changed the boosted ratings in the middle of the season, <laughs> it's just like I'm not, I'm going to let them try to figure that out before I brainstorm something about that. Um, and maybe at some point there'll be like an actual web program that does all of this processing itself in the background without me having <laughs> like manipulated the spreadsheet. But that's all. Very aspirational. <laughs> um. uh, so, were, were there any other uh, were there any other sort of trends like what some card types are are uh, people are more in agreement than others, less in agreement? Uh, we know that Shavka's embrace people disagreed on wildly. <laughs> were there any other cards that that had really dramatic disagreement? Yeah. So, I think that the. The the ones that definitely seemed to kind of stand out the most were very synergy driven cards. So like Mysterious Waystone, for example, um, that the most common rating for Mysterious Waystone was um, 
a, a two and a seven. And so oh. I think like considering that it's nearly uh, almost unplayable, uh, you know, or filler that you're going to be cutting from your deck most of the time um, to, you know, highly desirable card, seven out of 10, um, you know, I think clearly highlights the fact that, you know, similar to a card like Kodar Sees All, the question is, how much can the Synergy card stand on its own? Um, and so I think that, you know, weighting that against the likelihood that you may get the, the sacrifice effects that could make it more powerful at the time that you're going to be playing it and survive the, the game to play that, um, you know, clearly kind of factors into people's assessment of that card. Um, you know, another one is uh, kind of an, another grouping is cards that I felt like didn't have really great analogs to um, other cards in Eternal Draft formats. Um, and I think two of those were Dark Betrayal. One that I, a card that I think there were a lot of stories about that card early on, making it seem very powerful. Um, you know, I put it in some of my early decks. I had it played against me. And there were times when I played it and it did something bonkers. And there were times when my opponent didn't have, have a unit. And it was me spending four to six power to do nothing. Um, and so I think that one had uh, kind of a pretty... Um, a big distribution um and it probably has gone down in people's estimation as the format has kind of progressed um then another one would be siege provisions you know which i think that you know when you have cards like rallying banner costing five and then two and then being dependent on like having multiple units in play to have any significant effect on like boosting the the, the units um strength and health um you know whereas siege provisions is you know two justice it has the spellcraft where you can pay one to cast endure to make your kind of the target creature invulnerable to damage for that turn but it also has this added ability of pumping two is it two or three power plus two, two plus two four three cost yeah three power to get plus two plus two and endurance and, you know, I think that that, that was one of the other kind of cards that had a big, big distribution, um, you know, which, not you know, the average rating was 6.4. The most common ratings were 6 and 8. So I think clearly there were people who were high on that card early. There were people who were kind of more medium on it. Um, but there wasn't a lot of agreement. There was only kind of like, you know, it's less than... Less than 50% of people agreed on those two ratings out of the whole assessment. And so, um, you know, I think that that's another card that, you know, if you compare it to some prior mediocre cards, the question I, I think many people might say, well, this card is clearly, you know, I, I rate cards based on past experience with previous cards and I don't understand it. Like, it's easy to compare <laughs> Streets of Flame and Seer. Um, I think it's harder to compare Siege Provisions and say, how is this going to affect how my games play out in this draft environment. Um, and so I think that, you know, those types of cards were definitely kind of stood out to me. Um, and, you know, the other is that um, the other big takeaway was that most people agreed on commons and legendaries. I think cards that we play with regularly 
and cards that are either clearly bad or clearly powerful. <laughs> sure. Um, the rares and uncommons, you know, had much less agreement across them. I mean, uh, you know, oh, only 7% of uh, people kind of agreed about half of the rares, you know, as far as, you know, um, or 7% of the cards um, had agreement levels greater than 50% for the rares. Um, and so we just don't have a lot of experience with these cards. And so there's going to be, I think, a wider variation. And that could also be the fact that um, there's a lot of dual faction rares um, that might make people value them less um, kind of earlier in a draft run when they're making these picks and wanting to pick them up later. Um, even though when a lot of people were doing this, the stranger, you know, the fiction strangers were more common. And so maybe, you know, maybe that comparison isn't, com that conclusion isn't completely accurate if you think about the entirety of the draft format. So, Do, do you think that um, the disagreement on rares and uncommons uh, is is perhaps a split? This is asking you to, asking for conjecture here, but it is kind of a split between people who tend to be optimistic about cards they haven't played with versus people who tend to be more pessimistic? I mean, I think it's reasonable to think that. Um, but you know, I think that there's this inherent bias that, you know, rares are more powerful. And it's I, I find that that's, I don't know if it's, it doesn't seem to hold up consistently in eternal draft formats that I've um, kind of played in. And I've been playing since Defiance, maybe with the, the kind of second iteration of Defiance. Um, so spring 2019. Um, but I've always consistently found that there are commons and uncommons that I would consistently want to pick and felt were more powerful and consistent than some of the rares and legendaries that might come across. Um, it definitely seems like the um, power level at those rarities is higher than, say, my experience might have been with, like, Magic the Gathering. Um, and, you know, I don't know, that's my individual assessment. I'm curious if you guys have any thoughts about that. Well, I'm a, I'm, I take rares much more often than I should. Um, okay. just to just to be able to play with cards that I'm not used to playing with. Um, I do it to a fault uh, because science never stops. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, science always continues, and I want to be part of it. Uh, no, I, I, uh, I often will pick a rare uh, just just for the sake of, of playing it. Um, and I know that uh, and I know that that a lot of the commons and uncommons are are technically stronger, but there's, Anytime you're playing a card that your opponent isn't expecting, it's a, there, you get a little bonus there too. And so it's not entirely incorrect just to take the unusual card and play it, um, even if uh, it's not comparable in power level. And I want to be the person who knows what it's like to play with a rare. So I tend to do a lot of that, even if, it, uh, even if at the beginning of a draft format, I sometimes don't do so, so well. It usually kind of turns into a general knowledge about the format later on that, that works to my advantage, mm -hmm. among other things. Yeah, like I'll I, pl I, I played Blood Wolf happily, the bl which is a, a unit that cannot block. <laughs> it's a 3-3 three, three with lifesteal for three that does not block, and its text is almost useless. 
Uh, but I, I've, I've, I've played that thing so many times now. It's the what? kind of card that I think a lot of people would avoid, and I'm just like, nah, it's fine. I'll play it. We'll see if I it's mean, good. I think that that, I mean, it, it, it's interesting that you mentioned that because, um, you know, the, the, range, the range for Blood Wolf is the most common ratings were 3, 5, and 7. And so yeah. it's ranged from, you know, filler that you're going to be cutting, an average card, you know, 3, 3 for 3, um, to a card that you're actively picking and pulling you into shadow. And so, um, you know, it, and, and the average of the ratings was 5.3. And so clearly like that, you know, seeing the spread of how people were rating it, um, I think just highlights that it's a weird card. And when you, I think it, I personally, I hadn't put it in a deck until maybe the last week. And, you know, I think that because the whole can't block thing on a, you know, a decently sized unit that could get stonewalled by, you know, fairly kind of without too much difficulty. Um, it, it, see, it has enough effect that it, I can see why it can be powerful and effective. And, you know, even from popping Aegis um, or getting rid of, I was able to get rid of somebody's uh, rectifier shade um, by playing a post-combat Blood Wolf yeah, um, because they shades. thought they were going to be able to silence one of my flyers. But, you know, it's, I think it's, it has that kind of added extra flexibility and utility that is, um, is not inherently obvious in, in its, um, in its text and what you might expect from that and thinking that it's a rare when, um, you know, there's the three shadow, three, three that shifts to, you know, the dire beast from, um, the previous form. Was that dark frontier that we had shift? Yeah. yeah it was six. It's like the same, the same stat line and it can give lifesteal to another unit by shifting for four or whatever, and then come in and do some unblockable damage. And that's an uncommon. <laughs> it's just like, you know, when you look at Blood Wolf, like, it's like, how, how can you compare those? But you, you don't have to because they're not really in the same draft format. And that format is not the same as this one. And so I think that that's the other thing that is challenging about rating cards is when you're evaluating cards, I find that many times people are saying, you know, how do the stats stack up versus the cost? You know, what abilities does it grant that kind of offset the, the cost or make it kind of more efficient, have a more profound effect on the game? Um, and then, but, you know, it's harder, I think, to plug that into the actual format itself. Um, like the fact that, you know, ruinous burst in a world of tutus is not good, but in a world of X1s, it's actually quite good. And so, you know, I think that that's where knowing the format as a whole is kind of another level up um, for card assessment. And again, why I think that some of the value of getting multiple people's perspectives, part of what's being influenced by this is some people who are filling this out are valuing some cards higher than others. And, you know, that may be because they're evaluating them incorrectly or they just have a different understanding of kind of what's powerful and effective in this format. And just seeing that, I think, allows people to ask questions. 
and hopefully then prompt discussion similar to this um, that you know you know might make someone say maybe I should take this rare to test it instead of just trusting my gut that says this is not playable um, when you might in your experience of seeing how the games play out find that it actually becomes very effective you know one one last thing that I wanted to bring up was uh, was book club yeti <laughs> because I know just in the uh, when you posted the results the first time I think on reddit uh, one of the first comments was, oh, I agree pretty much uh, about all of this, except it looks like people hate Book Club Yeti for some reason. <laughs> um, where does that fit into the trends? Yeah, so it's among one of the least agreed upon comments. Um, it's right up there with Fury Blade, Siege Provisions, and Book Club Yeti. Or, well, yeah, of course, it's, <laughs> it's there with <laughs> itself. It's forming a book club with itself, you know. Um, and, you know, it's interesting. Most people rate it as you know, an average playable, um, you know, there's four five and six were the most common ratings. And I think that, you know, it's, I've seen people compare it to Pyradapt. It's a three, one for two. Um, you know, it trades up for three toughness creatures. It trades down for, you know, one, one power creatures. Um, but I think it's one of those cards that, again, that the sacrifice ability is clearly a benefit you know it's four is a three one for two um and you know it either deals three damage to a creature or it potentially can deal more than three damage um when you need it to and so i think that it's 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 definitely a card that you know its value goes up depending on the contents of your deck i mean if you have you know, just low cost relics. Well, it might as well just trade for an X three. Um, you know, and and instead of being sacrificed to deal two damage to something else, but it has a added flexibility that you know, if you're building your deck in a way that optimizes its effect and power, it can have a much more profound effect on the way that your deck plays out in general. Um, and so I'm not surprised to see it as kind of least agreed upon, but also, um, you know, the level of agreement was not that different. Um, and when you're thinking about a card, you know, ratings four, five, and six, those are cards that you're going to be playing if you're in primal. Um, and so, you know, I think it clearly starts to go up and become stronger if you're in primal, which will typically have some bigger relics. Um, and I think that, you know, it's so I, I, I think that it, it it does its job. It shows up, it read the book <laughs> and it hits your opponent or one of their units with it when it needs to. <laughs> yeah, like... it does. It reads the book and then and then it bludgeons with the book. Yeah, uh, it's versatile in that way. I think that I think uh, a trend that I am noticing here as you talk about um, the disagreement on cards is that flexibility is a hard thing to rate. Uh, when people are are faced with a numbering system, because uh, it, it it a, a number rating system sort of suggests that you're rating a card based on power. But what is power, you know? Um, and how much do you take flexibility into account? And I think that's something that is overlooked a lot of the time. Um, is is the uh, is that how many things a card can do? Uh, and there's really no like you were saying earlier. There's really no way to 
show that in a single number. You would have to have like a whole chart for every card. Like this is how flexible it is. This is how strong it is at its best case. This is how often you actually end up playing it and all of those different things. Those would all be different numbers. Um, but for beginners, which is uh, what you're aiming the spreadsheet at, um, trying to get all of the uh, everyone to um, uh, just get that boil that down to a single number is really helpful when you are approaching a draft format and it just all seems overwhelming and confusing. Yeah. Yeah, and I what? and so I think that my hope is is that um, you know people are finding this helpful um, that, you know, people are using it and finding it kind of helpful guidance when they're kind of going through their draft queues uh, or the, um, and uh, that, you know, it's, it's something that it clearly, I think the more participation you get, the more you reach some sense of truth, even though like it's not, completely accurate because as you know we've gone over there's just so many ways to evaluate cards and try to prioritize cards and it doesn't even kind of touch upon the idea of how do you draft an archetype and you know the fact that ratings tend to diminish in relevance the later you get in a draft because at some point you can't just fill your your deck with like five drop bombs um you need two twos to survive to play the bombs and um and so you know i think that's it's it's kind of like i think it hopefully an entry into other content creation and consumption and you know things like you know casandra's draft primer um that you guys went over the last episode um you know i think that you know draft walkthroughs that kalebovich does on team rank star um and then more comprehensive breakdowns of strategy like you know you guys do here um on this podcast and so you know i think that it's um I, I think that more content for this game is not necessarily a um i think it's a it's a it's a helpful thing um and you know i think i think that the other aspect of this that you know i'm kicking around is you know potentially having you know some type of article breaking this down in a little bit more detail um because some of so much of this is very visual um and it's hard to describe that in a conversation like this, um, you know, as far as being able to just look at kind of a filtered aspect of the sheet and say, this is what I think about about this. Um, so, yeah, well, I think uh, one of the things I was hoping to do was uh, these notes on the community survey, just like posting a, a link to maybe just these these pages to show some like things that you were highlighting that were, I think, fairly interesting um, from the responses you got. I think because like in the show notes you gave, I think a pretty good, you know, you didn't, it's not an article form, but it's a pretty good breakdown and highlights a lot of sort of the interesting disagreements. Um, because I, I hadn't actually really noticed, but like when you talk about like the most like quote unquote controversial cards or least agreed upon cards, you know, like Fury Blade, Siege Provisions and Book Club Yeti, you know, the count of the modes. So the most common rating, you know, there's only three of them. So like, you know, Fury Blade, the most common ratings were three, four and five. And so that means only three people 
said three, three people said four, and three people said five, and then four other people said a different number, um, at least two different numbers. You know, so like Fury Blade was rated, you know, in five different, <laughs> at least five different numbers, which is like kind of a pretty big spread when it's a 10 number rating system. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's pretty interesting just how disagreed upon some of the cards are. And I, I think that, you know, it's that even though the agreement wasn't kind of strong to focus on a particular number, when you see that, well, it's three, four and five, there's a lot of bleed between neighboring mm -hmm. grades and ratings. And so I think that, you know, it kind of hints back at, well, what exactly is a three? What exactly is a four or a five? But roughly it's a card that you're going to be more likely than not happy to play in a fire deck. Um, but you're also not opposed to having it cut from the final build because, you know, its impact doesn't scale well with the rest of the game. And it, you know, it clears an early blocker and then it probably just eats a lot of face damage or, you know, I had one game recently where someone put touch of battle on fury blade and smashed into one of my big units. And so it's just like, that was a way to kind of make some use out of fury blade late in the game. Um, dealt a lot of damage to them, uh, but you know it's just like <laughs> it, it, it got one power out of that <laughs> for sure. Um, so uh, cool. So I think that is a pretty good wrap, a pretty good uh, comprehensive explanation of your draft survey. I, I just have one more question, which is... Ha you said what? that... Your last question, you said, I just have one more question. You already Well, uh, then I, now I have another one, which <laughs> is how, if, if someone wants to take a look at the at the survey at this point, how, how would they go about doing that? Yeah, so it's currently, you know, probably buried in a, in a slew of Reddit posts, uh, you know, and so um, that's where I originally posted it. Um, and so, you know, if you search Reddit for... Um, Echoes of Eternity Community Draft Survey. Uh, you should be able to find it. Um, but, you know, my hope is to put, um, you know, a form of this um, information cleaned up into an article and then some links to it more kind of um, uh, on Eternal Warcry, which I learned as I was going through this has a way to uh, have the community members share articles. Uh, and write articles for for that uh that website and so talked to steve cakes and was able to um get access to do that and so that's kind of something that i'm hoping to do before too long um to kind of have a more secured place to kind of reference this and find the links um and then of course they're also posted in um channels in our discord as pinned posts in the farming eternal discord um you know under the what's the pick and um, card discussion and format changes, I believe. I posted links to those. Excellent. Excellent. So, yeah, uh, search for it on Reddit or look for it on our Discord or look forward to that article on Eternal Warcry if you're curious to see uh, the spreadsheet that we've been talking about in person. Yeah, and with that, uh, that's our show here. So thank you again to all our patrons for making this show a success. And um, for those of you who are not patrons, a reminder to give us a five-star review or a five-star rating, a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Send toilet paper to join <laughs> us in our Discord. 
link in the show notes. Finally, thumbs up all of Raven Dragon's Reddit posts, and don't forget to send all your seven win deck lists you do this week to farmeternal gmail.com. And remember to keep on farming. And seriously, we have no toilet paper in this house right now. <laughs> also, thank you so much for, for being here, Jed the Hummerid. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, no, it was a lot of fun. Have a good night. Goodbye. Good night. All right. Oh, wait, I forgot my final uh, bonus segment. I had this all planned. <laughs> so, yeah, so uh, as for after hours, <laughs> all of you out there don't know this. But Hats on Lamps and I talked about the coronavirus for a while after our last episode. And he complained that people were overreacting by buying hand sanitizer because everyone has the two ingredients needed to make hand sanitizer in their house. And so we didn't need to buy it. So, Jed, as a doctor, I just wanted to know if Hats's patented two-ingredient hand sanitizer was actually a thing that we should all make for ourselves. You mean soap and water? I don't think those were his two ingredients. No, those are those are great. Soap and water yeah. are better than hand sanitizer. But if you wanted hand sanitizer to bring with you, you combine aloe vera gel and uh, isopropyl alcohol in a, an appropriate ratio, and that will be that's hand sanitizer. You can put some you can put some uh, some essence of something or other if you want it to smell nice. That's it. That's the recipe. I'm gonna have to trust hats on this. I am not an expert in actually what goes into hand sanitizer but you know i definitely an advocate of regularly washing your hands for 20 seconds people <laughs> yeah no that's more important like the hand sanitizer is a band-aid that's why i was complaining about people buying it up is that it's more important to just like wash with soap and water for 20 seconds but uh but also the ratio there between the ingredients like look that up online because there's a few sources that i'll say similar things i was just complaining because the uh like the dollar stores will be completely stocked except for the hand sanitizer shelf, you know? And I know that's true in grocery stores and Walmarts all over the country right now. You can make your own.